Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit BroadwayBullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Well, I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. It is live after all, live. Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 113 for May 3rd. This is your host, Michael Gilbo, and we've got a lot of great stuff for you this week. A lot. We've got three-time Tony Award-winning producer Dory Berenstein here to talk about her new documentary that she directed, Show Business, and also about a little show that she's producing currently, uh, Legally Blonde. We're going to be talking with Daniel Jenkins, who is currently in Mary Poppins, but also uh, the original Huck in my favorite, Big River. We've got the director, Alex Timbers, who directed the show Dixie's Tupperware Party. We've got the children's show, a live performance from the new kid at the York. And we're going to hear a track from the new Broadway cast recording of Grey Gardens. And we just got so much stuff, so we're going to have to jump right into it. Illusions may shatter, but memories stay. The things that really matter, I lost on the way. The sovereign, the master, and long may he reign. The famous good for nothing. Many of you know that Big River is my favorite musical pretty much ever. It's no secret on the show. And so when I saw Mary Poppins and discovered that, lo and behold, the original Huck is playing the father, (laughs) Mr. Banks, and Mary Poppins, I couldn't wait to see if he'd be willing to come in to talk with us. And... Sitting right here in the studio, here's Daniel Jenkins. How could he be so old? Unbelievable. (laughs) I was. I was taken aback. That mustache he got on Mr. Banks. It's like, I'm trying to go... Where, 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 where is, you know, because I, I, unfortunately, I wasn't in New York, so I didn't get a chance to see you. I just, you know, it's a great disguise. I, I take that thing off, come out the stage door, and I look like a stagehand. It's, it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so let's kind of back up and go a little bit kind of chronologically through your career. Probably makes the most sense. Okay. What went into, like, the making of Big River? I mean, uh, you're the was, original Huck. Yeah, and Talk about a dream job. I mean, I was in town. I guess I was here for a year. And then I got that job, you know, from Louisville, where I was an apprentice and company member and had a great time, too. But, yeah, it was an unbelievable gift. And, you know, being a, a country bumpkin, really, it, it fit like a glove. And, and I had a good friend who actually worked with me down in Louisville playing Tom Sawyer. So, you know, after the, the longest audition of my life, I, I just had a fantastic time. Fantastic time. So just a year in New York. Yeah, I was here for a year. Were all your yeah. friends, like, killing you after that? Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they were pretty angry with me. <laughs> so, I mean, there were a lot of legends working on that show. I yeah. mean, uh, Des McAniff, is that that's pretty much where he made his big reputation, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And then, you know, of course, being out at La Jolla many years after that uh, and bringing great stuff in. Uh, and he was so much fun to work with. I had a great time. 
He's very specific. I had a very tall stack of little notes. He wrote one note on one page and, you know, and rip it off. And I could have made a, the world's largest notepad from, from the notes I had, which I loved and, and, and would continue to get uh, during the run. It was great. He was very diligent. Roger Miller was still alive when the show yes, was that's right. written. Yeah. So and did my, you get a you chance know, my, to meet him before? Absolutely. He... What a, you know, a wild, wonderful guy. I was really proud of his work in it because I felt like he stretched himself. His reputation was kind of like novelty tunes. That's what people associated with him. And he came out with this just really rich uh, gospel sound and mixed in some Dixieland stuff. And, you know, he was really stretching himself and, and growing. And one day he brought in Worlds Apart, which is my favorite tune. And I know. have so many favorite tunes from Oh, that my show. gosh. Well, he brought yeah. If you can imagine, we're working on this show. And, of course, it's been in development and in La Jolla and up in, in Cambridge, too. And they've been chipping away at it for a while. Roger, at one point, we realized we needed a tune uh, uh, for a certain spot in the show, and he brought in Worlds Apart, and, you know, he sang it for us, and we're all just sobbing. It's just so beautiful, and, you know, I was just very proud of of how deep he he reached within himself to, to pull that stuff out, and that was a, a great example of it. How much discussion was there? And I, I think this is appropriate to bring up because, lo and behold, it's back in the media again. The N-word yeah. that goes through. Um, I mean, my listeners may not know that pretty much Huck is one of the last things I did as an actor. Having achieved my dream part, I kind of like got bored. <laughs> That's so great. That's so great. That you and did. I just remember we had a we had a lot of like issues within, you know, well, what trying were the to issues then? What, what, how did that get settled? Uh, we did. We, we said it. Right. Um, you know, the mainly because the actor playing Jim you know, kind of pushed the issue and decided it needed to be that way. One of the things we debated over was whether Huck should switch after his big reverie uh-huh, with the thing uh-huh. and then not say it again. <laughs> and we were all like, that's pretty ridiculous because in the context of the meaning back yeah. then. Yeah. Uh, but I'm It's just a tricky question. I mean, uh, I, I, my personal opinion is that Mark Twain knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, the uh, the word has taken on a, a, a kind of much larger connotation. The, the power of that word has grown. But I do think he knew what he was doing when he had the ignorant characters use the word. And he used it not just the way you would use guy. He used it repeatedly. He used it like a sledgehammer. It was very much on purpose, in my opinion, the the volume uh, uh, the number of times that, that that word was used in the book. However, in modern context, you have to go, okay, why are we using that word? Are we trying to teach people who might feel the same that this is wrong? Are we helping people? Are we hurting people? I had, I had an interesting when I did the revival, we were out on yes, the road. Yes, our listeners, you did the re- revival, then the sign yeah. language version. That that's right, right, and basically got to sing and say all the same stuff and then and kind of narrate a little bit as Mark Twain. But uh, we were in Houston, and they had a real problem with us using the word in Houston. We were going to play in front of 6,000 people out on a, you know, a big lawn, and we used the word slave instead. And I was at first I was pissed off. I was like, come on, this is not the piece. The piece is about this ignorant boy who learns what real friendship is. That doesn't mean he's not ignorant anymore. There are parts of him that wake up, but he is raised to be prejudiced. And this is, you know, a very, very important part of the story. We can't just abandon it because some people don't want to hear the word. But then I realized uh, now there are people that are hurt by that word. And the African-American community in general can be – it can be very, very painful to hear that word and to 
kind of legitimize it by having it on a stage. So uh, to to not be coy about it, but it's not a black and white issue. There's yeah. so much gray area. I imagine every company around the country that puts this on probably wrestles with and the issue. And it's good that they do. Different. It's good that they do. I don't think there's one answer for it. Uh, you know, there's kind of a, a knee-jerk liberal reaction, which is you have to educate. Uh, but then there's kind of a, an, another area of, you know, are you causing pain or are you are you helping in any way? It's it's tricky. It's tricky, man. Well, we like exposing, uh, you know, lesser known musicals and can't say that Big River is one of them on the show except one of my favorites. But with you in the <laughs> studio, I'd love to play one of the tracks from the cast album, one of my favorite songs. Oh, there's so many on the thing, but uh, the trio Leaving's not the only way to go. And we're all expecting you to sing along. So. Is, is there any story that behind this that we, that we can Oh, uh, I think the story to? of this one for us was, why are we all three singing on stage, Des? <laughs> what was <his laughs> the, the thing That was the question that we have to you know, keep, keep uh, asking ourselves and justifying for ourselves that these, that these three environments uh, would happen uh, at the same time. Now, we're all singing the same thing, but what are we saying? The regular questions you would ask putting on any show. <laughs> Which always seemed to come up when we <laughs> did this number. Did the morning come too early? Was the night not long enough? Does a tear of hesitation fall on everything you touch? Well, it might just be a lesson for the hasty heart to know. Maybe leaving's not the only way to go Maybe lay and let your feelings Grow accustomed to the dark And by morning's light You just might solve the problems of the heart And it all might be a lesson For the hasty heart to know Maybe leaving's not the only way to go People reach new understandings all the time They take a second look Maybe change their minds People reach new understandings every heart without a home is such a lonesome road to home. Maybe leaving's not the only way to go. When you mentioned what are we singing about, I mean, I think one of the brilliant things that he did with the book, I mean, sorry, one of the brilliant things that Roger Miller did with the music was that some of it was pretty straightforward musical theater, but most of it was kind of alluded to what was going around the action and not yeah. directly yeah. character and somehow no. it still just ties and it is like hand for the hog is a great example of that. it's just like that is a total left field absolutely roger miller tune 
what the heck is it doing in this show? You know, <laughs> it's and it's perfect. You know, it works. It works beautifully. Um, yeah, I, I liked I liked how his songwriter writer mentality uh, meshed with uh, musical theater mentality. I li- another you know stretch for him. The stretching was the musical theater stuff. You know, it's like, am I going to further the story here? How do you do that? You know, <laughs> that wasn't something he knew, but uh, he was willing to learn. Let's, let's move along. The thing, and another landmark show that you're involved in uh, was Angels in America. Oh yeah, yeah, that was um, and yet another unbelievable honor. And, I and got Stephen to... Spinella, who is a, who's been on the show here with uh, Oh great, Spring Awakening recently. Oh yeah, yeah, this is fabulous. Fabulous. I got to replace him and actually got to work in development on the second part of that at Sundance. So I kind of fell in love with the piece and with Tony and with Pryor before it even came to New York, knowing that it had been written for Stephen uh, and then getting to okay, I actually didn't it. realize you replaced his role. That's yes, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And believe me, I watched and stole as much as I could because he was brilliant. Yeah, that was a great, great time. Really great time. You, in Angels, you, you gave so much and you kind of emptied yourself out, but Gosh, the, how much you got back was uh, was huge. I'd never gotten that much back from an audience. Yeah. It was amazing. And then you got to originate the Tom Hanks part in the musical version of Big. Yeah, again, I had a great time, an unbelievable time. That was another one that fit very well, uh, you know, child in a man's body. I'm pretty much still a little boy. <laughs> but uh, at a great time. You know, my research was like playing video games and eating pizza with 13-year-olds. So how bad could it be? <laughs> you know, when there's that iconic role, I, I like. I wondered how much Norbert Leo Butts was thinking about, you know, Steve Martin before mm. him on Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Right. Was that a role where you were wondering how what to would Tom your, do? Yeah, what would Tom do, or how do I separate myself out from this iconic kind of movie performance? You know, I, I've been asked that question before, and I, I can't say that it was ever really an issue. I mean, I had obstacles and objectives and issues and, you know, kind of a supernatural issue, they were all plenty big enough for me to struggle with without having to worry about uh, how Tom Hanks might have been doing it. You know, it uh, it really, truly, honestly was never a problem. Uh, That's a lot of people don't believe that. And I I loved the movie and I loved uh, Tom Hanks' performance in it, um, but I didn't feel like I needed to somehow honor it. <laughs> you know, before we started interviewing, you were you were saying that you thought they got it right in the tour even more than the show. As well, they had more to... chance to work on it. Yeah, after after Broadway, they had uh, the writers got you know more time, and I think just like any good oil painter, they'll take that thing off the wall and start you know putting more oil on it or scraping stuff off. And yeah, they they did a beautiful job on the tour. Yeah, and there's still some fun music from it. Probably a good show for like community theaters out there to, Absolutely. to do. Yeah. And we're going to play one of those, one of your songs on that. Do you want to set this one up? Uh, yeah, uh, this is Coffee Black, I think. And uh, this is right after um, Joshua uh, wakes up uh, sexually. <laughs> and he comes into the office the next day. You're cute this morning, sweeter than a morning snack. Guess who would like some brew? Oh, and make that coffee black. Wearing my suit this morning, I bet you had a heart attack. It's strange, but for a change, I'll take that coffee black. Life is neat, one big dream. Ah, oh, it's so sweet. Who needs sugar and cream? Splashed on some root this morning. I'm snazzy as a Cadillac. 
I'm up, so grab your cup and let's have coffee. Lots of coffee, shots of coffee, pots of coffee. Oh yeah, make that coffee black. But you don't drink coffee. Miss Watson, get production on the line. Get production on the line. Set a meeting here at ten. Set a meeting here at ten. Tell McGregor in design. Tell McGregor in design. I want sketches here by then. You want sketches here by then. Get a guy to shine my boots. Get a guy to shine your boots. Send publicity of facts. Send publicity of facts. Order ten Armani suits. Order ten Armani suits. From that lady up at Saks. From that lady up at Saks. Call the factory overseas. Call the factory overseas. Have to put the schedule back. Have to put the schedule back. Oh, and while you're at it, please. Can I have a coffee black? Does it take to get a new design from the drawing pad to the office floor? About two weeks, maybe less, maybe more. How about this afternoon at four? Wow, sure! Barrett? Barrett! Yes! What? How fast can you move a prototype from working draft to cutting steel? I would say ten days is real. Tonight at eight, how's that feel? Wow! Deal! You shape an ad campaign for a new toy on the production line. Three months for a full design. On my desk tomorrow, nine. <laughs> wow, fine. Come on, fellas, follow me back. And please, Miss Watson, get them coffee black. it on your bed. An elf? What is it? I believe we are supposed to present our ideas tomorrow morning at nine. I love this guy. Does he have balls or what? Look how he's bossing round the boss until he takes his shot. He tells me nothing and I don't get mad. By God, you're like the son I never had. Who's that? That's the son I had. Everybody listen up. Yes, man, yes. Big change of plan. Right, right, right. From this minute on. What, what, what? This man's the man. This man, this man. If he wants a pencil, yes, yes. get this man a pencil. Right, pencil right. If he scuffs his shoe, yes, man, yes. get him a shine. Most of your work on stage, not in... Yeah, most of my work is stage, and, you know, like most stage actors, uh, you find ways to supplement it with, you know, television or commercials, and so, you know, there have been pilots that have come and gone, little 
TV work uh, and commercial work, which supports my theater habit because theater isn't, you know, an incredibly lucrative profession. But yeah, you know, some off-Broadway stuff, uh, some music that uh, I've gotten to write and get produced and... And having kids, you know, having a family, that's an amazingly engaging a bit of work. So, uh, yeah, I'm pretty pretty blessed to, to get to make a living doing this in New York. How did Mary Poppins drop on, on your life? Did you, you know, audition or was it an agent? Yeah, audition. Audition. It was the longest span of an audition process I've ever had. I think there might have been eight months between the first audition and, and the last one. Uh, because the, the creative, the amazing creative team were across the pond. So, you know, getting them all over here was a chore, uh, just logistically. So, yeah, you know, audition for it. Uh, I, I scheduled knee surgery around, like, the auditions. <laughs> so, you know, that's how long the process was. It was wild. And, and for, you know, a nervy uh, Broadway audition process, it was really fun. Now, the show has actually quite a lot of really established veterans playing a wide variety of roles. Yeah, like absolutely. Cass Morgan is yeah. in there as the, the bird lady. Yeah, I've worked with Cass. Cass, Cass has done a show that I wrote with my dad, who was also in Big River, by the way, uh, came in and replaced uh, Renee's role eventually. Um, so I did a, a show with Cass that I wrote, and then I did a, a show that she wrote uh, with her in North Carolina. So we have a lovely kind of cyclical uh, history. An incredible voice. Oh, my gosh. A wonderful actor. The show actually is more based on the books than the movie, but it has yeah, I songs. Think, I think, yeah, the books are really cool. The books are really well known in England. Uh, and, the, and the show's like in its third year there. It's still, you know, doing really well. But they're not as familiar with the books here. So kind of the wonderful part of the, getting to do the show is introducing people to these little, you know, gorgeous uh, uh, storylines uh, that they're not familiar with from the movie. So they, you still get these these uh, kind of iconic songs and tunes that you know, and then I feel like George and Anthony just kind of seamlessly put in uh, a, a few of these tunes. They fit so beautifully, and yeah. So the books really add some depth and and a storyline also to the stage version. I think a lot of people might be thinking it's a little, you know like some of the other Disney things where they just kind of put the yeah it's, put the movie on you know this the, on is stage a little, and they really little bit did. of a different animal. Yeah, I mean I think. There were some things that you obviously are going to put on. You're going to put Super Cal on the stage. You know, you're going to put Jolly Holiday on the stage. And they actually, they make sense, too. In a musical theater uh, setting, those songs will work really well. And they've done great things. I love that kind of sign language thing they've worked into Super Cal. I think that's so cool. <laughs> uh, that blows me away. So they add theatricality to it. But uh, as far as trying to make a story that will engage you know, an older audience as well. I, that's what I'm most impressed with. That's the stuff that I, you know, get hold of anyway. So I, I was really impressed with what uh, Julian did with the books. And I actually think in the in the in this version of the the production, actually, think your character has one of the I think biggest emotional journeys actually throughout the. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the show. Someone said, "Are you having fun?" I said, "Yeah, of course I'm having fun." But really, what I'm doing is when they're all doing Super Cal, I'm backstage crying. You know. <laughs> I, I spend a lot of time moping backstage. You look uh, very excited when you finally get your chance to have the little, little verse of Super That's Cullen. right. Yeah, yeah. And it is, it is a, great, a great journey, you know, and a really accessible one. And I, I got to say some of the most rewarding parts of it for me are when uh, fathers or men come up to me and, uh, and express their, you know, thanks for, for showing a, a part of the journey that they are very familiar with when you, you, know, you kind of lose touch with what's important 
and uh, you know work takes over and you forget that your kids are growing up too quickly. It's all stuff that is so accessible for me. It does, it's, you don't have to reach very far. It does kind of engage a wide cross-section of the audience. It's you know one of those things that Disney does very well. But in this case, I think uh, it's working even better because of that story aspect. Technically, there's some real uh, kind of oh, yeah. Yeah, eye poppers in this show. During, I don't know like, how much we're allowed to say. <laughs> I should have asked. Yeah, there's stuff that, you know, so we're in tech, right? And we're pissed off because we can't go out in front of the house and see the darn effects, you know, because we want, we want to see Gavin do his thing. So, so me and Rebecca and Jane and Mark, uh, Jane, uh, Carr and Mark Price play the, the, the maid and the butler in, in our house. And the divine Rebecca Luker, of course, is my wife. She's unbelievable. Um, so we're, <laughs> we're supposed to get back into the house because the house is coming downstage after this, this step in time, this number. And we're like peeking, you know, through the, the last wing there. We're looking in number four to see how much we can see before we dash back <laughs> to get into place for the house to come down. Yeah, it's, it's so cool, that stuff. It is so cool. And just the reveal of step in time. To me, that's a number in the second act, yeah. uh, the, the chimney sweep number. Uh, uh, Bob Crowley it just, you know, it just continues to outdo himself. It's uh, breathtaking, breathtaking. Anyway, it's 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 cool to witness, and and, and even from the wings and and from out front, it must be <laughs> it must be something else. I'm normally not like I, I like simplicity a lot of times. Like yeah. Chicago, what they do is perfect. Yeah, me too. I, I do too because of story. Because you know you're focusing on performance and story. But I have to say, for an impressive set piece, this was really an impressive. There's yeah. there's things I'm going. Oh my god, how are they dropping that attic all the way? Oh, unbelievable, <laughs> man! You are seeing your ticket price up there. That's for sure. You, uh, and it's a big cast. A big like, cast. You know, so many musicals are small anymore. Full I mean, orchestra. It's like you know. In a lot of ways, it's a really old-fashioned musical. But, yeah, the pyrotechnics are... You're kidding. You're kidding. There's more? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how long do you think you're up for this one? You know, I, it's, it's, uh, it's such a great job. It's going to be hard to leave. Because it's certainly... You won't have to. It's going to be running for years. It's clear. And Rebecca Luker uh, is, you know, is as good as they get. She's so connected. She's got such deep chops. She's so right there on stage, and she's so fun backstage. You know, I'm really fortunate. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I really like it. I really like the gig. It's nice to be working. <laughs> so, like I said, sometime when you get some time off, you have to come down here and when we're not kind of rushed and maybe sing something for our listeners here in the studio. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Run through all of your favorites from Big River. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much Only for if you're down. singing, too, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I don't sing anymore. I really don't. That, that, we'll see. We'll that's see. a use-it-or-lose-it tool, definitely. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so much for coming down Absolutely, in the midst my of all pleasure. this craziness. I hear you're replacing some of the kids, so this is that's been a right. Yeah, yeah, we got some new kids coming in. They're adorable, adorable. Good luck with the rest of the run. Thank and, you so uh, much. Thanks so much. Thanks talk. for having me. Yep. Up close. Every fan of this show uh, definitely knows the trials and tribulations that go into producing theater, whether it's on a Broadway level or at their community theater. But there hasn't been a film that's quite captured the franticness of an entire season before. But just now we have the documentary Show Business, directed by Dory Berenstein. And Dory is here to talk about that in the studio. How are you doing? Excellent. Thanks for having me. 
uh, I'm glad to have you here. You know, anybody who has three Tonys lined up in their wall is welcome to come on by. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I imagine those three Tonys had a little bit to do with you getting access to do this amazing documentary. <laughs> I think it did help uh, in a number of ways to be a Broadway insider. It, uh, uh, I did know a lot of people in the community, and so uh, uh, it helped with access. But I think it also, for me, it helped uh, being part of the community for 15 years before I made the movie really helped. I knew what I wanted to make. I knew the story I wanted to tell, and I knew the community well enough and and the process of creating theater. So I felt that I could be responsible with this incredibly precious subject matter. Now, the movie follows for the, predominantly four of the main musicals from the 2003-2004 season and largely chronicles, especially the Wicked Avenue Q showdown. Now, you did like 250 hours of footage over the season. and A little more than that, <laughs> yes. <laughs> How, I mean... It seems incredibly daunting. How how did you just have people like constantly just going out? How are you keeping track of the footage? What was all the process going into this? Well, I had a very small team, but a very dedicated team. And you know, when you're when you're tr set out to capture a Broadway season, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if the big shows they're talking about coming in are really going to come in. And then, of course, there are little shows that come in and take Broadway by storm that no one predicted, Avenue Q, for example. And so we really had to be there throughout the entire season and capture everything that was going on because we didn't know at the end of the day in the editing room what configuration, what, what stories we wanted to tell that would uh, make the strongest film. And so we had to be everywhere. And how did you label all this footage? And where did you stack it? <laughs> well, it, we we uh, took over my home. Let's put it that way. But it all. But also, uh, I had an incredible editorial team that was very anal and was very good at labeling, <laughs> and uh, that's definitely saved the day. <laughs> what were some of your personal favorite? vignettes and snippets and things that you captured? There are many, and many that aren't even in the movie. Uh, but for me, the most magical moments were when we were able to really capture genius at work and the creative process in motion. So, for example, Janine Tesori, the composer of Carolina Change, who's now composing Shrek, conducting the Caroline Orchestra for the first time. Um, uh, George Wolfe directing the cast of Carolina Change, uh, Stephen Schwartz working on compositions for uh, Wicked, or even more so in the recording studio doing the CD for Wicked, and he just he could hear one little tiny note that that nobody else could hear that was wrong, and and he he just had this amazing gift where he could he knew that something wasn't right and spotted it, and they went back, caught it, redid it, moments like that that. You know, really true genius uh, at work. It was uh, magical to see, and I was really honored to be able to be there and capture it. I, I kind of particularly enjoyed the the roundtable discussions with the critics, <laughs> <laughs> seeing their faces as they gave their sniping comments. <laughs> so, uh, what was that like? Were the, do they? I, I'm guessing they don't normally just sit all together and have. At Sardis discussing all the shows. Well, I think they do get together. I think they're all friends, and and they do get together. Maybe not in that group, and maybe not four times a year, but uh, sure, they go out to lunch and dinner together, and and uh, talk about what's going on. I, I you know, I felt that uh, it, wanting very much to capture honestly what what goes on behind the curtain of a Broadway season. Uh, that there's no way to do that and be 
uh, honest about it without including the press. And so they were so generous to allow me to to capture their honest, candid commentary uh, throughout the season. What was your inspiration for putting together this documentary? Is there something inspired you that said, I want to capture this yes. whole madness? Well, I, I grew up just loving theater so much, uh, and I, I knew early on that uh, I was not destined for the Broadway stage. I was definitely going to be a behind-the-curtain player. Uh, so I was very captivated with, with everything that uh, went on backstage and how that magic was created and, and the process of creation. And, and uh, when I read William Goldman's book, The Season, in college, which is a book that chronicles the 1968 Broadway season, uh, I just I just was completely hooked and, and wanted so much, you know, dreaming at that point of being one day a Broadway producer and a filmmaker, wanting to bring that book, in essence, to life and to be able to, to show this magical world behind the curtain. When I read it, I hadn't even been to New York and seen a Broadway show, but I, I, I just was, I just fell in love with it so much that uh, it was a dream I had and, and, and hoped one day to get to the point where I could make it real. Tell us about producing here in New York, not just this film, but like I said, you've won three Tonys as a producer on uh, Yes. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, Early Modern Millie. Full Moon. Yes, Full Moon for the special <laughs> event. Yes. That's more, that's more than a lot of people get. And, <laughs> but also, I'm thinking you might be in a position to comment on there seems to me to be a very big changing role in, in the producer. Um, from, I, I'll specifically point out that I, my jaw kind of dropped when I went to Spring Awakening, and in the playbill, read through four or five pages of producer bios. Um, sure. When you know, I still think about probably maybe you read the books too of the days of David Merrick, mm -hmm. and um, is there a changing role? Is are we? past the days again where we'll see like a David Merrick, a one kind of producer above the Well you saw that mill. you saw that in Taboo with Rosie. Rosie Yes that was put in the movie. Her own money, ten million dollars on the line. But David Merrick Taboo. never put his own money in. He mm -hmm. just he he was he was the kind of the classic producer. He arranged and did yeah. all the business and and got it in. And well yeah when when David Merrick was producing it was very different. There were tax incentives for investors. There were there were support from the arts from the government. It was a very different time and it's very uh, challenging to raise money for a Broadway show. You know, something that has commercial hit written all over it is a lot easier than uh, some of uh, the more challenging uh, fare that, that comes up. But you don't want to hold a show back just because it may not be uh, the, the biggest commercial hit of the time. If it's great art, it needs to be seen. And sometimes on shows like that, it, it takes a village. You got you to gotta get a lot of people together to help put on the show. At the same time, there, there may be a lot of producers there, but there usually are one, two, three, uh, the most four, typically, lead producers who from day one are shepherding that project, every moving part of it from the beginning all the way through the end. And the producers that join later on uh, certainly have a lot of, of, of great uh, in, uh, value to add, uh, but they are extremely helpful in raising the financing to help put on the show. Now, you're currently working on one of the new shows that just opened yes. as a producer, uh, Legally Blonde. Yes. Where did the idea come from to turn Legally Blonde into a musical? Well, over five years ago, uh, my partner Hal Luftig, uh, who's produced many amazing Broadway shows, including Moving Out, and we worked together on Millie, uh, he uh, came up with the idea uh, to turn uh, 
Legally Blonde into a Broadway show, and uh, he invited Fox Theatricals, who was also a partner of ours on uh, Millie, and he, and I was invited to be in the core team that would ultimately bring the show to Broadway. And uh, Hal fell in love with the ideas, and we did as well, because Elle is such an amazing universal character that, that has such an arc and, and an adventure, discovering who she is and learning that that it's cool to be smart and and you have to be true to yourself and it's such a great story and and she's she's such an, a compelling character and it's and it, it's such interesting worlds the sorority world and then Harvard uh, we just immediately were passionate about it and all deeply committed to uh, seeing it all the way through. What is the process like in terms of auditioning and finding the right creative team? Uh, well, I it, think you put together a very interesting uh, mix and it, that I think shows a lot of foresight. And that's why I'm kind of curious what the process was and the thinking. Sure. Every show is different. And so uh, every, every one of the shows I've worked on has, has been a different evolution in terms of how it all came together. But specifically for Legally Blonde, Jerry Mitchell was somebody that we all admired tremendously. Um, and Hal knew that Jerry was ready to make his directorial debut. He had just been a brilliant choreographer uh, for uh, Full Monty and Hairspray and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and La Cage Phone had just won the Tony. He immediately connected with the material and had a great vision for how to bring it to life. We talked with a lot of composer lyricists, many know, very well-known Broadway composer lyricists, uh, prepared a few songs, Larry O'Keefe and Nell Benjamin. Uh, Larry had done Bad Boy. Yeah, that, you know, I wasn't even interested in Legally Blonde until somebody said that Larry he was it. doing the music, and I'm going, "Wow, that's that's a good match." Well, day one, they hit it out of the park. We just the second we heard what they had prepared, uh, it was extraordinary. They were they just got it, and uh, basically all three songs that they wrote uh, as demos are more or less in the film. Uh, in the in the Broadway show, <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, Heather Hawk, who's our book writer, uh, comes from the world of the movies. But she was she's just a perfect fit. Um, she d- had done Freaky Friday. She gets that world. She speaks that language, but she also is this brilliant, brilliant woman, and rounded out the creative team perfectly. Um, but wrapping back around, and we talked a little about your production. Back to the documentary. What legal th- hoops do you have to jump through? I mean, I noticed um, in the, the in for the press they had a bill with like you know the thanks and stuff, and there was like a thanks to about um, like ninety unions listed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I, I'm guessing legally, you know, this is a place where you probably have to deal with a lot of people claiming their own turf. Well, you know, the Broadway unions and guilds, um, and there are seventeen um, unions and guilds. Uh, were completely supportive of this project from day one, and there's no way this movie would ever have been able to uh, have been made without their support. They were tremendous every step of the way, and uh, as was uh, AFTRA, uh, and I'm deeply grateful to them. So you're going on tour with this now. Is that, is that, <laughs> is that the right word? Is, the, the, yeah. is it a documentary tour? So it's not just going to be our New York listeners who yes. catch the show, but around. Uh, where is it all going? What's it like setting up a documentary tour? Well, it's uh, it's a little more complicated than than a bro- touring Broadway show because really? we're opening in several cities at the same time, which <laughs> which you don't do with a with a Broadway show. Um, but we uh, we open in Los Angeles in June, um, and then we we on June eighth we are in oh, I think open in four cities: Chicago, San Francisco, 
Boston and Atlanta and uh, uh, Rochester, and then we continue to roll out across country from there. And so uh, we want very much uh, the film benefits and and celebrates Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS, and that's such an important organization to me, given how much they are they continue to do for the Broadway community. And we're eager in every city, everywhere we go, to uh, uh, celebrate that organization and do things for them. And opening up in multiple cities at the same time, give, it's a challenge. It's not, you're not, you know, like a, a touring show. You're not in one city and then another and then another. It's it's movies. It's the world of movies. So we're, you can be in many places at the same time, which is a, a very exciting. Is the ultimate goal to try to get an even wider release on a distribution, or is this... Or is this release platform more of like a PR hype for building towards a DVD release? Well, I or... think financially, the you know the probably the place that the the film stands to make the most money, and hopefully we'll be able to make a nice contribution to Broadway Cares is is with the DVD. But for me, because Broadway is so visual and vibrant and gorgeous, you know, I want as many people as possible to see it on a large screen because that's the world. You know, it's not it it's I think still captivating, but on a small screen, you're not going to appreciate the lushness and beauty of, of, of the costumes, of the sets, and everything else that's, that's in the film. So I'm hoping that uh, it's seen by as many people as possible in the theater. Yeah. Oh, uh, one example that, you know, for listeners to catch the movie is, you know, the detail that you've caught and the coordination that it must have taken is, for instance, you seem to have caught footage from every gypsy robe ceremony that year and shown in the thing. And, and the, I imagine that must have taken a little bit of coordination to make sure you had a camera guy on hand. That... Oh, yes. And, you know, the, capturing the gypsy robe for me was, was uh, it's my favorite moment in the film because it's such an insider Broadway moment. It's a beautiful, beautiful moment. We just had the gypsy robe for Legally Blonde on Sunday and everyone was crying. You know, it's it's such a wonderful tradition when the gypsy, uh, the performer who's been in the most Broadway shows, is honored and gets the robe that's being passed from one Broadway musical to another, to another, to another. And they run around. Everybody gets in a circle on the stage before the show opens that night. And and they run counterclockwise uh, three times around the stage. And then they, in the gown that they're wearing that has... Uh, 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 beautiful patches from every show that's open that season. They have to run around to every dressing room, and uh, and it w- it did take a lot of coordination to make sure we were in the right place at the right time. Didn't miss the gypsy robe, and that we were invited to be part of it was really a lovely thing. And and I'm so excited that that's part of the film. All right. So, is there a website where people can catch more information and find out if it's coming near? where they're located, et cetera? Absolutely. It's uh, www.showbusiness-themovie.com. And uh, I know you got a lot of projects coming up in the future. <laughs> Hopefully, <laughs> we'll get you a chance to get you back on the show. But I thank you so much for stopping by in the middle of what I'm sure is a very busy time for you. Well, thank you so much. Great. The Call Board. We had a few more giveaways this week. Uh-huh. And if you weren't a registered user, you didn't hear about them. But we're going to have more coming up, so just get to broadwaybullet.com and sign up to be a registered user on the website so you can hear about our great giveaways. We gave away five copies of Georgia Stitt's CD this ordinary Thursday. We played a couple tracks and interviewed Georgia last week on Volume 112, and the winners of the CD are April Nash from Norfolk, England, Kate DeWitt from Tulsa, Oklahoma, Charlie Wright from Babylon, New York, Sarah Rosen from Maplewood, New Jersey, and Michael Murphy from Kansas City, Missouri. We also had some tickets to give away to uh, The Sea, and we had a couple tickets to give away to the musical Time Being, which we talked about last episode. And um, 
Uh, those winners uh, were Frank Taranella, Susan Nason, Alana Rader, and James Amadeo. Now, let me tell you something. Especially if you live in New York City, you should sign up for the mailing list because we got some shows wanting to give away more tickets. And while we had a lot of listeners on the show, they really want me to email them about free things. And um, we don't have enough New Yorkers yet. So right now, if you live in New York, you can get in to see some free shows. <laughs> Almost guaranteed. And uh, you should stop by Broadway Bullet and check out. There was a great thread, and that's all the people had to contribute to, to for a chance to win George's Stitt CD. And there's a thread in the forums talking about uh, people's favorite theater-related concept albums, and it's it's turned up a few nuggets, some some CDs that I've forgotten about that I like, some CDs that I haven't heard of yet that I definitely got to go check out based on the comments. So uh, there's some nice discussions starting to happen on our forums. So thanks a lot, everyone, for your contributions, and sign up, become a registered user, and don't miss out on all the great giveaways we have got coming up. Hi, this is Amy Wilson. I'm the star and writer of Mother Load. We're going to be on Broadway Bullet talking about the show next week. Until then, visit our website, motherloadshow.com, for tickets and show information. Always remember, you are the adult. Listening room. Well, Grey Gardens has released a second one. They have now got the official Broadway cast recording out. As many of you know, we had some exclusive live performances from new songs that were added from the off-Broadway into the Broadway production on Volume 101. If you haven't, you should check it out. It was a great interview with Scott Frankel, the composer of Grey Gardens, and Matt Cavanaugh and Aaron Davey. They performed three original tracks, and, well, they figured there's probably some fans on here. So, uh, we're there letting us play a song, and I have a suspicion that we're going to be doing a giveaway on this soon. Don't know. Might happen. But uh, out on PS Classics, this is Around the World, sung by Christine Ebersol from the new Broadway cast recording of Grey Gardens. It's my mother's house in my mother's name, and you can't beat mother at mother's game, because she likes the people who I don't like, and if I don't like it, it's take a hike, which is mother's way of reminding me, when you live off mother, you can't be free, and I think that mother is very mean. And this latest thing with this wash machine, the one Jerry brought, don't be too surprised if the guy moves in and I'm pulverized. Cause I'll be damned if I'm gonna waste my time washing clothes in a goddamn machine. I feel very strongly about mementos. Memorabilia, I guess you call it. Around the world is what I call wall of special things around the world with rose bouquets I dried and tied on strings a silver mask from a masquerade around and round I tweak you tack them up so you can twirl around the world we found it Jerry found my old song it's my mother's house with my mother's friends and with Jerry coming it never ends it's the same old story as George Gould Strong not in 20 years did we get along though I do feel bad for the way he died in a two-bit flea bag a suicide it was mother's money the Bouviers and if mother spends it in crazy ways no one else took care of her only me she was taken care of not sexually and if you infer that they were using her I will shove you out of the goddamn bed around 
Around the world without a boat And just a quote from Frost Two roads diverged in a yellow wood A lovely crossing all Around the world, the world around the attic wall Around the world there isn't room for every space To make the music sing A silver mask from a masquerade Around and round I twirled You tack them up So when you go The world will be the one you know A birdcage I plan to hang I'll get to that someday a bird cage for a bird who flew Once again, the Broadway cast recording of Grey Gardens is out on PS Classics, and right now you can order it direct from the website, psclassics.com, for only $14.99, and it's got real great booklet, pictures, lyrics, everything. All right. On the boards. Sitting with us, we have an up-and-coming director on the New York City scene. A lot has happened this year. He's got a new show at Ars Nova, Dixie's Tupperware Party. And he just recently received a Drama Desk nomination for directing one of our favorites here at Broadway Bullet, Gutenberg the Musical. Here's Alex Timbers. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? I guess we'll start off with the recent news really quickly. What's it like being nominated for a Drama Desk? Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, what's ridiculous are the other people who are nominated, like Hal Prince and Michael Mayer and people like that. And to be alongside those people is somewhat preposterous. I know. And and what, what, what are you, 16? (laughs) <laughs> you have a very young face. Thank you. 28. 28. <laughs> so, but still, it's a, directing can definitely be an older person's game. I think you have to awards. have gray hair to direct. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> or it makes you go gray. <laughs> a couple more shows, you'll be there. Thanks. I'm working on the paunch right now. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your new show, Dixie's Tupperware Party. Absolutely. Uh, Dixie Longgate is the number one selling Tupperware salesman in America. And she's also a drag queen, uh, the persona of Chris Anderson. And so this show is is basically her home party with sort of a design around it, a sort of a theatrical version of the thing she actually goes on cruise ships and does and does in sort of middle-aged housewives' homes. And uh, we have sort of grafted a sort of a journey and arc to it, a sort of emotional center. And really turned Ars Nova into a giant Tupperware party. It's an immersive, interactive entertainment. Now, how did you stumble across this show? I was contacted by Ars Nova. I've I've actually worked a lot with drag queens. I did directed a show up at uh, P-Town last summer, and so I, I really sort of enjoyed that work. And uh, Chris is by far one of the best. He is very funny, very in control of of what he does and knowing his audience very well and knowing this character well. And so he's really been excited about the opportunity to really take it to the next level. 
So are the are the costumes a little bit more than hats? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In this one. I... Yes, yeah, so they're fully fly. It's a whole whole costume this time. <laughs> So, how, in general, how do you find? Do they just come to you, or, or how are you going about looking for these newer works? As you, at least these two I know are definitely from newer writers, newer works. And right, I, I've been lucky in, in those situations to be approached by people. In both those situations, also there was a a show that existed, and where the producers felt it necessary to sort of retool the production team in order to sort of take it to the next level. So it's it's a little easier than, you know, working with a script from scratch in, in terms of that's already had its readings and its workshops and, you know, helping, you know, this is something that actually already works uh, and is successful. And it's just about, you know, taking it to the next level of, of theatricality and the next level of storytelling and really making the humor crisper. Are you from New York originally? Mm-hmm. Oh, you really? You actually yeah. don't sound like a New Yorker. I was, oh, I was, okay. I was guessing transplant. But uh, uh, I'm a Manhattanite. <laughs> Where did you study, or how did you go about breaking into directing here? Uh, you know, the first thing I did when I came to the city was I found my own theater company, a company called Lefer Corbusier. And we have a very specific mission, which is to focus on historical figures and historical subject matter, and we cast those things in irreverent contexts and idioms. Uh, so we did a show about Scientology that was done like a nativity pageant and all with children. It was called a Very Merry Unauthorized Children's Scientology pageant. And we just did a Hedda Gabler, which focused on uh, Ibsen and the well-made play and those sort of uh, more intellectual principles. But we did it with robots, so real robots. So it was kind of funny and silly. And it was called Hedatron. Making your own way and forging your own opportunities. Absolutely. And that's then opened up the door to working, you know, with other companies like Ars Nova. And besides Dixie's Tupperware Party, I, I, I'm told you have a couple other projects on the horizon as well. Yeah, I'm doing uh, do, developing a show with Bradford Lorick, actually a drag show. This one's not quite as funny. It's more dramatic. Up at Sundance this summer, I'm working as a co-director with Roger Reese on a workshop for Disney at Williamstown and doing a show at the Village Theater called Escape from Bellevue, which is a sort of rock and roll club show, and then developing a work that I wrote with a composer called Michael Friedman called Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, and that's a, uh, an emo rock musical about the life of, of the seventh president. And uh, that'll be premiere in L.A. in January at Center Theater Group's Kirk Douglas Theater. So juggling a lot of things around at the time. Yeah, we're all excited about all of them. Though. They're <laughs> great. So are you drawn to, like, smaller things? Like, I mean, Gutenberg is just two people, and uh, Dixie's Tupperware Party is a one-person show. Do you like kind of the, the intimacy of working closely in those smaller projects? I think the things that I, I enjoy most about directing theater are, are works that are really visceral in terms of comedy and have a sort of a rock and roll aesthetic. Dixie's Tupperware Party weirdly has a sort of, you know, punchy... Uh, rock cueing, very highly technical cuey video sound, lots of underscore, sort of aesthetic for the whole piece. And uh, it also just trades in humor that feels very uh, contemporary, feels very, you know, ironic, deadpan, has lots of sort of comedic drops to it. Um, and that's that's true of all the work I'm working on right now. And I'm very excited about that, uh, as opposed to the sort of the hoary drawing room comedy. 
<laughs> sort of less into plays and more into unique theatrical events and musicals. Now, this run for Dixie's Tupperware Party, this is a pretty long run, actually, for Ars Nova, isn't it? Yeah, it's a 10-week run. It's one of their sort of – they just did this with At Least It's Pink. They have these extended run shows uh, that are more technically involved and have their own set and light plot that the other sort of one-offs in the space work around. Where, where do they go? How do they get tickets? All that – well, Ars Nova, but – is there any other place to get tickets from? Uh, that's a really good question. I think ArsNovaNYC.com and visiting SmartTix would be uh, your best options. And best of luck with all of your future endeavors, Alex. It was nice getting a chance to talk to you. And best of luck with your drama desk. Take Hal Prince down. Thanks so much. <laughs> I, I intend to. <laughs> Have a good day. Side. Once again, this is Marty Cooper on the negative side. Yes, I'm back there again. I've been thinking this week, uh, and for me, that's a dangerous thing. A few years ago, I think it was 1999, was it? I think opened at what was one time the Henry Miller Theater. They called it the Kit Kat Club. It was a revival of Cabaret. Great revival. The show was totally reconstructed. I couldn't help but think as good as the movie had been with Liza and Joel, and it would have been a lot better had they used the format they had used in this revival, because the movie was kind of clean and not dangerous like this show was. The way it was presented back in 1999, it was scary. You really thought that this country was going totally downhill and it was going bad, and people were going to die. And you had that feeling throughout the whole show, this dark cloud feeling. Because after all, this was Germany right before the takeover. It was scary, and it was presented that way. Uh, and it was raw and uh, dirty and great. I want to correct myself, it was 1998, but uh, uh, time flies when you're having fun. But in any case, subsequently... They have brought back a lot of shows that they've redone that shouldn't have been redone, should have been left as is, with the stars they chose. Annie Get Your Gun was one of them. Bernadette is a Broadway queen, and she was wonderful in Annie Get Your Gun. But why change the orchestrations, the arrangements? Why take out I'm an Indian too? I don't understand this PC crap. Take my word, I, I got to tell you. You know, I don't think it's insulting to have a song called I'm an Indian Too. Then, a few years ago, they put on a revival of Sweet Charity with the terminally cute Christine Applegate. She was wonderful, and she probably deserved the Tony Award that year. She was great. Dennis O'Hare was great. It's a Bob Fosse show with Ralph Burns orchestrations. Why change any of that? You can use these people, these great people. Everyone in the show is fantastic, but it wasn't the same. If you want to revive a show and you want to bring great people into it, revive it the way it is. If it's a classic, forgive me for jumping back and forth, but everyone knows the way Rich Man's Frug looks and is supposed to look on the stage. We, we've all seen those cigarette holders and the way they dance, the way they do this huge dance number, Bob Fosse choreography changed. Why? I don't get it. Recently, we had a revival of Chorus Line. I happen to like this revival a lot. 
but it, excuse the language, it ain't the same. A few weeks ago, I was talking to someone who was pr predominantly involved in the original production when I said to him, I like the show a lot. I just think it, it's not as organic as the original show. He said, that's the word. Organic is the word. First of all, they changed the orchestration somewhat. Uh, they took the harp out. The harp in the original production sounded wonderful. They took the electric guitar out. Now, uh, I'll tell you a funny story. If you've ever seen the original orchestral score for Chorus Line, there's a point in the music in the mirror where they actually say it's the shaft effect. If you remember the, sh the movie Shaft and the theme song, if you remember the wah-wah guitar, you remember that little effect that it had in the song. And they actually used that in the music in the mirror. They took that out. Uh, they changed the orchestrations on that great tits and ass number, Dance 10 Looks 3. They changed it a lot. As much as they want to show us an original production, it isn't. I miss all of this, and I only hope that if they plan on reviving some other great production, the way it's supposed to be done, that they spend the money and they do it right. If you have any views on what I've just talked about, uh, contact me at broadwaymarty at aol.com. I'd welcome any suggestions. And once again, this is Marty Cooper, negatively on the positive side. On the Positive Side is brought to you by The Colony, online at colonymusic.com or in the heart of the theater district at 49th and Broadway. You can always say, I found it at The Colony. On the boards. All right, um, this is Paul Armento. I am the composer, lyricist, and director of The New Kid and also The People Garden, playing at the York Theater. And with me today is... Alexa Eisenstein. And Alexa is our troop veteran. Been with us for how many years, Lex? Too many. Eight, I believe. <laughs> um, and she is performing this weekend and also in two weeks on the 19th at the York Theater. And we're going to perform the song The New Kid, usually sung by the character Zach. And I'm going to be speaking the part of Samantha, which is, I guess, going to turn to Sam. <laughs> All right, you ready to go? Yeah. I don't even have a name But I think I know this game's first rule They say, hey you kid And even though I'm shy I just look up and say hi real cool I wish that I could find a way Like magic words that I could say To make the whole school think that I'm not lame But maybe it won't be so long Till they decide that I belong And everyone Such a scary change to make Better watch the things you do, kid If you want to get along Better not do something wrong by mistake I remember in my other school When new kids came, we'd act so cruel we never let them feel like they belong We'd joke about the way they walked Or laugh about the way they talked But now I realize what we did was wrong new kid. 
It's a new king. The new king. It's a new king. The new king. Do they think that I'm a wussy? Do they think that I'm a freak? Do they know that in my old school, people thought I was a geek? You'll need to be real tough. Things could get a little rough for a while. Nothing you can do, kid, and it really isn't fair. Just act like you don't care and smile. Maybe this won't be so bad. After all, I still have mom and dad, and the friends I make on AOL each night. I'll be just fine. I'll find a way. School only lasts seven hours each day. I won't need any friends here. Yeah, right. Hi, you're the new kid, right? Uh, yeah. What's your name? I'm Sam. I'm Zach. <laughs> nice to meet you, Zach. Nice to meet you too, Sam. <laughs> All right, Paul and Alexa, that was great. And you got both the People Garden and the new kid that are playing kind of in a rep at the York, right? Yes, they are wrapping up in the next couple of weeks. Through the 19th, but then you said you're going to be bringing it back probably at some point. I intend to have a very, um, I love working at the York Theater, and we're already talking about doing some things, um, even possibly the end of this summer, and if not, um, just you know, throughout the year. It, it'll be periodic uh, shows, so <laughs> not runs like we have right now. Maybe like we'll do uh, maybe three, four shows at most. All right, so if you, if you ran into a parent in the elevator... What's your 60-second elevator pitch to come see the show? There's not too much theater that parents can take their kids to and also enjoy themselves because a lot of kids' theater that I've seen, at least, um, you know, from my experience, is more gen it's more toward kids. And the new kid is – it's real theater. It's kids being real kids. And parents can enjoy it just as much as the kids. And there's a tremendous amount of depth in it. It's kids being real, and there's important les lessons for uh, kids and also for adults. Well, Alexa, I can imagine that uh, a lot of kids can relate with the the song The New Kid and the lyrics. Yeah. Do you have a personal connection with that one? Well, I wasn't the new kid. I was the odd one out. I was the uh, Ali Sheedy, the breakfast club. I was the one in the corner. So, yeah, everyone would judge you. And it's, re and it's really hard if you don't know what's going on or if you have any self-doubt. I understand. The new kid is kind of geared more towards older youth. And the People Garden for younger kids? If the People Garden is a cast of actors that ranges from age six to, I think, nine. And um, they're, it's a, based on a kindergarten class. And the content is appropriate for kids, but there's a deeper element because there's a, an adult performer. So it really has um, – that's a more universal show if parents want to you know, come and, and go with their kids. The new kid is actors between the age of 10 and – um, usually 14, um, Alexi being our, our sole old person. <laughs> hey, You're ancient now. She's 16. Um, but she's... so old. <laughs> <laughs> but the, ra the age range is like our three and up. Three-year-olds uh, three can enjoy the new kid, and three they love the new kid. The new kid is really high-energy rock score. It's all kids. It's 12 actors that are all, that are all kids. People Garden has a one adult. Now, you've been developing these two shows for quite a while, right? Well, I wrote People Garden. Actually, I started, wrote it in 93, and it was produced in 97. So this is a 10-year anniversary, actually, this month. Um, 
We've been developing it through the new people that come on, the new trends. There's a lot of things that refer to current things. Like we have Madonna in the original People Garden. The kids want it. When they, when they grow up, they want to be Madonna. And then there was, what, Spice Girls and then Britney Spears. And no, that's no, not No, it's good. Hillary Duff or Hannah And Montana. Hannah Montana. So who knows? It just that's, that's how it changes. It's the format for People Garden hasn't changed, but the content, you know, becomes enriched by, by actors' improvisation. And then when did you write The New Kid then? New Kid was written, I mean, in 2000, and it was based actually on some stories Alexa told me when she was mm-hmm. um, having difficulty in school. And she mentioned before she's the oddball out. There's a character in The New Kid, which is written, um, called, her name is Samantha, and I was playing that part in the uh, song as Sam. And that was based on her character in her school. And um, where were we going there? I just lost my train of thought. The, since this is going to be keeping coming back occasionally, people should uh, check out your website. Or check out the York Theater's website, which is www.yorktheater.org, spelt in the classical way, T-H-R-E. And we'll be on there. If they want to find out about our shows when we're not on, I guess we could send them to sandcastlekids.org. And that would where they would find out um, about when we're going to be at the York, if we're not on the York website. Well, thanks for coming down and performing, and have a lot of fun with the, your remaining performances. Thank you very much for this opportunity. It was fun stuttering. <laughs> <laughs> Of the trades. And we now have the most important theatrical news of the year. Filming for the sequel of Disney's massively successful high school musical is complete, and the program, which follows a concert at a country club during the high school or summer vacation, will air August 17th on the Disney Channel, according to TimesUnion.com. High School Musical 2's cast will include the return of Zac Efron as Troy, Vanessa Hudgens as Gabriella, Ashley Tisdale as Sharpay, Lucas Grabiel as Ryan, Corbin Blue as Chad, and Monique Coleman as Taylor. Also returning for the sequel are the original's writer, Peter Barsuccini, and director-choreographer Kenny Ortega. When asked why, August 17th, Disney responded that if they put it on during the school year, there would be a massive outcry as every single pre-teen girl skipped junior high. Although hardly known for being a speculator, the New York Post's Michael Rydell writes that the upcoming Broadway musical Spider-Man might trail a $30 million price tag behind it, prospectively making the show the most expensive musical in Broadway history. A producer said, quote, the numbers are going to be astronomical. The musical, as previously announced, will be directed by Tony Award winner Julie Taymor and will also feature costumes and, quote, slick but bleak urban landscape, unquote, sets by the director. Produced by Hello Entertainment, David Garfinkel, Martin McCallum, Marvel Entertainment, and Sony Pictures Entertainment, the musical will feature new music and lyrics created by the classic musical theater composition team, U2's Bono and The Edge. Yes, a reading is scheduled to take place this summer. No dates for a Broadway opening have been confirmed at this time. And I have to say, I'm giddy with anticipation. I cannot wait. There hasn't been something that looks like this much flop potential since Carrie. How lucky can you get? Well, if you are Michael Arden, Peter Lockyer, Sean McDermott, and Hugh Pinero, not much luckier, as they are the four Broadway performers selected to go out with Barbara Streisand on her new European tour. Robert Diamond of Broadway World dug up all the details and put it out first on BroadwayWorld.com. I love it when news sounds as desperate as this. The Roundabout Theatre Company will likely revive its 1998 Tony-winning revival of John Kander and Fred Ebb's Cabaret at Studio 54. 
The New York Post reports that the nonprofit theater company will likely present the Sam Mendes Rob Marshall production following its upcoming staging of Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine's Sunday in the Park with George at Studio 54. Sunday, which recently won five Olivier Awards, will begin its New York run January 18th, 2008, with an official opening February 14th. Sam Buntrock will direct. The New York Daily also says that Alan Cumming, who won a Tony Award for his portrayal of the MC, would again star in the Canner and Ebb classic. Okay, again, smells of desperation. You can find a new hit roundabout. You really can do it. I loved Cabaret. Incredible production. I saw it three times. Move on. Find a new hit. There is one there. Just look. Perhaps beyond the realm of what were considered second-rate minor hit musicals at the time. Tony Award winner Billy Crystal will receive the Kennedy Center's Mark Twain Prize for American Humor at 8 p.m. on Tuesday, October 11th at the Kennedy Center Opera House. The ceremony, which is open to the public, will be taped by public television station WETA for later airing. Crystal won the Tony Award along with numerous other honors for his solo show, 700 Sundays. He has appeared in such films as, um, if I list this, I'm insinuating that you are stupid. But the press release didn't seem to think that. <laughs> uh, previous recipients of the Mark Twain Prize include Jonathan Winters, Richard Pryor, Carl Reiner, Whoopi Goldberg, Bob Newhart, Lily Tomlin, Steve Martin, and Neil Simon. Top of the Trades is brought to you by BroadwayWorld.com, always your best source of theater news of all stripes. For more on these stories and, indeed, links for everything we talk about in the entire program, check out our show notes page at BroadwayBullet.com, volume 113. Top of the Trades will be back next week with all of the best theater news. Curtain Call. Well, first off, I'd like to say goodbye to one of our first interns, Laura Costa. She got a substitute teaching job permanent. She said, hey, it wasn't her dream job, but it sure beat the hell out of this. <laughs> no, she said she's still going to be contributing every once in a while to the website, and we wish her the best of luck and so much thanks for all of her help with her transcriptions and research and everything else. Everybody with me say a big collective thank you to Laura Costa. Also, uh, closed last week, Prelude to a Kiss from the Roundabout. It's gone. And if you're missing it or if you missed it, you wanted to see it but didn't, we have a little nugget for you. In Volume 108, we talked to the star, Alan Tudyk, so you can get your fix yet again by checking out that episode. We got a lot of great stuff coming up in the coming weeks leading up to the Tony nominations and all of that stuff. In fact, we're, I'm going to be putting up a new poll tonight. Uh, yeah, it's been on the leading ladies for a month, so I'm going to put all the results up in an article. And we're going to do a new poll. Tell us really quickly what shows you think should be nominated for Best Musical. Because, again, just like the leading ladies, there's going to be some good ones this year that are overlooked. So, all right, once again, thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and until next week, thanks for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet. Well, I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. It is live, after all. If I see one more Christmas Carol regionally, that Dickens hey. has made enough money and beyond. Many minutes trying to sell myself. It's no shame. But we kept all the jokes that made people laugh from before. And so the ones that didn't. Because rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about 
something that shook musical theater. Working at Lincoln Center, it sounds very huge and elevated, and that's what it feels like, like once you're working there. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.